dog mushing was everything. I mean, it was my passion, first and foremost. I mean, it was my reason for existence. It was my lifestyle. It was my job. It was my, you know, it was what I wanted to study. It was what I wanted to teach. It was, it was everything. Um, you know, looking at it today, I'm a little, I, I want to conscientiously pull away from it a little bit because if I don't, I think it, it will pull me back down into that 24 seven and I don't have quite that much energy to, to do that anymore. Um, but it was everything. That was dog musher, Ali Zirkel. She's always felt a strong connection to animals, dogs in particular. She tells this story about how when she was a kid and lived in Puerto Rico, there were a couple of stray dogs that pulled her around on a skateboard. Mushing was in her blood, even then. For 30 years, mushing has been everything to Allie. It's been her passion and her career. And understanding her dog's abilities and their limits has been key, because if you break that, if you break their trust, or you ask them to do too much, then they lose confidence in you as their leader. So Allie made sure she knew every one of her dogs, their individual personalities, their eccentricities, and their limits. Skunk, Commando, Mismo, Mac, Pedro, Rubia, Beamer, Viper, Keto, just to name a few. She knew and knows all of them. They've taught her indispensable truths, like how to live in the moment and how to appreciate the present, because that's all we really have. In 2021, she raised her last Iditarod. It didn't turn out the way she anticipated. Her plan was to win, to be the first racer to pass under the burled arch. But about 200 miles into the race, she crashed, hit the back of her head on the ice, and was dragged by her arm for an indeterminate amount of time. She had to be airlifted to the hospital, where she found out that she had suffered a concussion, something that she's still recovering from. As a musher, she has relied on her toughness, her ability to get through difficulties out on the trail on her own. That it's her and the dogs, Team Zirkle, the fan favorite, out there in the Alaska wilderness. The team that always finishes the race. That's been her biggest struggle throughout all of this, that she didn't finish her last race. It weighs so heavily on her sometimes that it's best just not to think about it. She says that the whole situation still seems a little surreal and that she's still trying to make sense of it. So here she is, Allie Zirkel. Welcome to Chattermarks, a podcast of the Anchorage Museum, dedicated to exploring Alaska and the circumpolar north through the creative and critical thinking of ideas, past, present, and and future. future. My name is Cody Liska, and I'll be your host. You and your husband, Alan, run Skunk's Place Kennel in Two Rivers, Alaska, and I um, I have family who are from Two Rivers, Wisconsin. Oh, actually, that's funny because people do Google that and they say, huh, there's a, yeah, there's, so Wisconsin is, yeah, not close to us, but maybe per <laughs> heart it is. <laughs> yeah. We do. It's Skunk's Place, and honestly, way back in... Uh, Oh, geez, at least 10, 15 years ago, we abbreviated it and made it 
chicky by calling it SP kennel. So most of the time now it's just an abbreviated SP kennel, but it does stands for does stand for Skunk's Place. And why did you guys name the kennel Skunk? <laughs> uh, so back in the early 90s, I was living in a, a tiny little town uh, in Alaska above the Arctic Circle, about 50 miles above the Arctic Circle, Bettles, which maybe you've been to. Um, and um, I adopted my first sled dog, and by golly, his name was Skunk. And um, <laughs> this was the, de- the days before, you know, oh, 9-11 and, you know, that kind of thing. And I went to town, which was Fairbanks for me. So I flew to town and I had to go to the DMV to get a driver's license. And um, I was living in Bettles. I didn't really have an address because I was just living on the main street and there was one street in Bettles. And um, so I filled out the application at DMV for for my my driver's license. And it said something like, you know, the cabin on main street or or whatever and the lady's like yeah no you got to be a little more specific and so i was like well i i live at skunk's place because he lived there with me and she's like well is that like some kind of condominium and i was like yeah something like that so for a while my driver's license said alley circle skunk's place Bettles, alaska and uh so it seemed only logical that wherever wherever i ended up going skunk whether he was there physically or whether he just spiritually followed me down the trail Mm -hmm. he went there with me so skunk was my first sled dog um i adopted him from a couple who were were just finishing their trapping lifestyle outside of kotzebue um and uh he came my way back in yeah the early 90s and why did you name him skunk I actually didn't name him Skunk. Um, okay. They, they named him Skunk. He was, yeah. So, I mean, he looked like one. He's black and white with a stripe. But, you know, <laughs> honestly, throughout the years of me traveling around uh, villages with, with Skunk or Skunk's Place Kennel, uh, <laughs> the, I remember a couple of Athabascan Indian guys from uh, Alakakit were like, Allie, what, what is the name? Stinky Place? What? And I was like, hey, <laughs> hey now. They were like, because there are no skunks up here. So I, I. Yeah, it was an incorrect name, but, you know, a lot of things are incorrect. And at least it, you know, it fit me. Stinky place for many, many years. <laughs> and how did you get into dog mushing? Well, I have forever had a better connection with dogs than people, as you will end up noting at the end of this interview, most likely. <laughs> um, and uh, even when I was a very young, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten. Um, actually I lived in Puerto Rico of all places and, uh, had a couple of stray dogs that pulled me around on a skateboard. Um, so it was, I don't know, in my blood in a weird way to, to hang out with dogs, work with dogs and definitely connect with dogs. Um, and then bring me 15 years later when I ended up in, in battles and, um, wanted a non-human companion because that was how i rolled for many years and so i adopted skunk uh the first winter and um (laughs) built a sled and uh i ended up adopting five more dogs that winter from various oh rescues and people who didn't want dogs and as you might know um huskies grow on trees up here in alaska so if you Mm -hmm. say hey i'd like to adopt a dog you know two days later you'll have 15. um so anyway that first winter i had six dogs i hadn't a clue um but i built a sled i ordered some harnesses i bought some dog food caught some fish and basically i was hooked i mean i would mush to the post office and 
I'd go mush seven or eight miles and go camp with my six dogs. And, um, it was awesome. I had, I had no, I was not in the, I, you know, back then there wasn't all the media and that kind of thing. So I, I didn't really even follow the Iditarod. I didn't know about, you know, the Yukon quest. I didn't know about racing really the first couple years. There were two, two different families that lived in Bettles who had a sled dog team. One were some folks who trapped with dogs and, um, I made friends with them and we went on a little three dog team adventures. And then the other one was, uh, a family, Athabascan Indian family, who actually were relations to George Atla, and they were more of mm. the sprint racing uh, family. So I went and helped take care of their dogs and asked if I could put skunk in their team. Can I go? And they were like, yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> I think back to that now, and I'm like, wow, that was pretty bold. So, so that's how I got into it. I mean, it was pretty much dogs are my thing, and traveling with them sounded better than anything. And... Uh, so now I find myself with that. I was 30, 30 years ago. Is it pretty wild to you to think that, you know, when you were a kid, you're on this skateboard and you're being pulled by a bunch of dogs. And then, you know, years later, you're a dog musher. Oh, yeah. There's certainly destiny or fate or something in our world. And whether it's deep down inside of you that you you might not realize for many years and it somehow guides you in that direction or something guides you in that direction, mm -hmm. but it's, it was meant to be, uh, of course, you know, there's never a smooth road for anything we choose <laughs> because we are yeah. humans and this is life. Um, but certainly it, um, it was even more refreshing to me this summer when I connected with, um, this friend that I had in Puerto Rico and I hadn't talked to her in literally since uh, 1980 let's say and um, through mutual mutual folks and her mother who whatever I ended up connecting with her and that was some of the biggest that she had a dog and I had a couple dogs and we talked about my first mushing experience and so it was kind of cool earlier you said that you have a better connection with dogs than people I wonder what did your parents think about that when you were younger? Oh, they thought it was very true. Um, I was the kind of kid who would, you know, come home from school with two, two dogs following me. And um, then I'd say, hey, mom, dad, meet puppy love. This is our new dog. And they'd be like, oh, no, 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 it's not. I was even so sneaky as to we went on a vacation one time and I hired the neighbor kid to come over and put dog food around the house. and. My dad had said, well, if she's here when we get back, I guess we can keep her. And I was like, oh, boy, we've got a new dog. So they were pretty, yeah, I I had dogs and then I I had horses and um, <laughs> horses with in parentheses kind of thing. They were Puerto Rican mutt horses. So they weren't they were kind of like, yeah, they were small and sassy and probably more like dogs. Um, and uh, so back in my youth, I was just, I, animals was where it was at. And yeah, there's a, it's an easy connection there. They're honest. Mm. Animals are completely honest. And when you can connect with them on a level that this is what you want, this is what they want, it's such an honest relationship. And human beings are just far too complicated and 
never honest, even though that's, I mean, I'm not saying that in a bad way, but it's just who we are. We don't want to lay ourselves out there for, hey, this is who I am. You, you, people never do. And so then you have to look around the curve to figure out who exactly you're talking to. And um, it's just more complicated. I always find it interesting when a dog, you know, encounters a stranger and either likes them or dislikes them. And I always think like, what does this dog know that we don't? Yeah. Well, and the other thing, people, people treat dogs like humans and they're so not. And that's, that's probably, and it's fine. I mean, everyone's going to do whatever they're going to do, but dogs are so much more happy being dogs than they would be trying to, to be a human. That's mm -hmm. kind of one of the predicaments that dog mushing the sport of, or the recreation of dog mushing has a problem with its PR in that, you know, folks who, no offense, live in a in a condo in Denver, sit with their boxer right next to them and watch mm -hmm. the Denver Broncos get beat by the <laughs> Seattle Seahawks and their dog sits right next to them and they say, uh, you know, can't imagine you being out there, Bowser, and freezing your tail off in the uh, on the coast of Nome. And, you know, honestly, I can't imagine that dog being out there freezing his butt off in Nome. But boy, you, you walk around with my dogs, Commando and Mismo and Mac and... I can't imagine them sitting on the couch, you know, in Denver watching a football game. They'd go ape crazy. So mm -hmm. it really just, you know, a lot of people don't treat dogs like dogs anymore. But I'm not sure. I don't know. You know, I'm not sure people really live like people used to live either. You know, I'm yeah. sure you run into that all the time with people would rather, you know, freestyle skate and jump off cliffs in a VR situation than they do in real life. No one wants to do that anymore. That you, you might break your leg, whereas you could do it VR and you'll be just fine and go, you know, have a gin and tonic that night and be warm. Yeah. And I think that that might be a difference in maybe what people want out of life. You know, there are the type of people who want the actual experience. And then there are maybe, maybe the more voyeuristic people who want to have the experience once or maybe have some semblance of the experience, like a VR experience. And then, like you said, be able to, you know, go to the bar in a city that night and have a gin and tonic and talk about it. Yeah. And it's just what our society is drifting towards simply because it's, I mean, human beings are are evolutionarily going towards what's easier. I mean, it makes sense. Every, mm -hmm. I mean, ad adaptation is created because we try to make life easier on ourselves. And I think, you know, that's what's happening even now. Like people are trying to make their lives easier so that they are more successful and their genes are more successful. And so why go out and try to do something crazy like sleep in a sleeping bag at 45 below when you could you know, watch someone else do it on a TV show or something. Yeah. Yeah. From the comfort of your own bed. Right. Yeah. But can you blame people? No. So, I mean, it's really, I don't, I don't have a problem with it. I just think that's the way we're going. Do you think it's progress or do you think we're digressing? Oh, I mean, it's probably got to, it's got to be progress as according to any kind of Darwin's theory, but whether it's something that I appreciate is a whole nother story, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I feel that I, I feel like, you know, I grew up a certain way and 
I didn't grow up with cell phones as, you know, intimately as kids do now. And so, although I might be on my phone a lot, when it goes dead, I have this like sigh of relief. I don't know what it is. It's something like inside of me that just doesn't want it there maybe. Yeah. Or that maybe is uh, excited to maybe get back to, I don't know, my roots or something like that. Yeah. I think that definitely it's gener it's generational too. I mean, I would say I still use, I still use my cell phone as a tool. Mm -hmm. Whereas I would say my, you know, my, 14, 15 year old nephew, it's more than a tool for him. It's, it's like a, an extension of him, mm -hmm. but you know, it, it is what it is. My grandmother would have sat here and talked about, you know, our, our TVs or even our telephone system, you know, 40 years ago and been flabbergasted with what we had going on. So it's got, it's got, it's just what it is. It's evolution. It's, it's, it can't be bad because it's going towards what it's going towards. And I think if you look at things negatively that way, then you're just going to be <laughs> depressed, which is yeah. easy enough to be in our world today anyway. So <laughs> I think you just have to look at progress as progress. And then hopefully, hopefully people will still, you know, make the right choices about progress and not ruin society versus trying to make it better, which is a, uh, is a toss up in our, in our world. You know, what's interesting to me too, is here we are talking on a podcast and this is basically radio. You know, this is right. basically what was really popular before television. Yeah. And so I think there is a cyclical nature to things that, um, you know, make an easy answer even more complicated. I agree with you. I, I see a lot of cyclical natures in things. It's almost like our human brain has only so many things and it comes back around. Mm -hmm. uh, and you're right. But then the technology makes it, quote, better or different or what have you. But I, yeah, I completely agree with you. Yeah, I think we we're probably always going to be, you know, interested in the things that we're interested in. You know, if we take right. storytelling all the way back to, you know, sitting around a campfire, you know, we still like that. We still, as humans, love staring at a fire. You oh, know, yeah. And, and Last hearing. week. Yeah, yeah, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, my husband is out there right now. Uh, moose hunting is, you know, season is in Alaska right now. And he's out with, um, with, a friend and a young and actually a uh, not 11 year old out there right now. So sitting around a campfire, I'm sure. Well, maybe not during the day, but tonight he will be. And do you guys hunt for, you know, your winter provisions? Yeah. For our year long provisions. Oh, um, year long. Okay. Yeah. pretty Yeah. Uh, we have eaten pretty much. We eat moose, uh, which is burger and people. I, yeah. It's the, so I make, I mean, everything you make with burger, with, uh, what do you call it? A uh, cow burger. I'm, we make with moose burger. It's, there's no, there's no difference. So, I mean, whether it's tacos or lasagna or, um, stuffed peppers or I, I don't know. I mean, everything. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, we eat a lot of, if we can catch it, halibut or cod, um, and some, and some salmon. Salmon is a little more complicated. Like you have to, I don't know. It's fancy. 
like halibut's like chicken like throw it in tacos or throw it in lasagna or throw it wherever but yeah yeah salmon you have to look at it, it's bright red and you're like oh i have to do something fancy my dad has a surfing hunting and fishing charter outside of seward and i grew up uh on the ocean you know mm -hmm. yeah fishing and and all that and i think my favorite fish is rockfish oh so, really yeah yellow-eyed rockfish yeah huh see i just feel bad because they're like a hundred year old fish so i just let them go <laughs> oh really what are they all a hundred years old they're honestly they're amazing actually if you look up rockfish well there's all different kinds of rockfish but the yellow eyes you're talking about holy cow they can live to be like a hundred years old and um yeah they're pretty cool but honestly up until a couple years ago you couldn't release them safely because you're catching them at um 200 300 400 feet and when you pull them up their swim bladders it's like a decompression thing yeah. but now there's this cool little <laughs> there here comes you know technology coming to save the day there's this cool little <laughs> release mechanism that brings the fish back down to the depth that you caught it at and releases it there so it's it's and this year alaska regulations require uh, fishermen who are going for rockfish to have those on board so that's huh. kind of cool this is my new thing boating is my new thing that's kind of uh <laughs> taking taking sp kennel uh by the wayside and i just looked it up and yellow-eyed rockfish or yellow-eye rockfish can age up to 150 years isn't that crazy yeah that's wild <laughs> you feel bad now don't you I kind of do, yeah. <laughs> uh. So being around dogs so much, what do you think you've learned about them that maybe the average person um, doesn't catch on to, doesn't know? They, uh, they're, most dogs, whether they're smart or not smart, will figure you out more than you figure them out. Hmm. Um, dogs have lived around human beings and have, for lack of a better word, weaseled their way into being cared for. Um, you don't, I mean, obviously domestic cats, you look at domestic cats that way too. And maybe cats are, have even weaseled their way more because they poop in your house and you, you know, you pick it up and all that. <laughs> but dogs, I mean, think about it. I mean, all these other animals that, you know, squirrels and raccoons and coyotes and everything are looking in the window like what the heck did fido do to get like <laughs> sitting on your couch and you pay whatever 37.95 a month to get a bark box where you have your own little chew toy and everything yeah. and you go out of your way to drop little you know fluffy off with the doggy daycare where she goes and plays and gets bathed and so dogs have it figured out. I mean, yeah. their evolution has really risen them almost in some situations higher than than human beings because we do ridiculous things to quote make them happy. Mm -hmm. yep. I know that a dog is pretty darn happy with a couple meals a day, a relatively safe place to be, and perhaps not you know medically not itching and not i mean but other than those things and a little bit of tlc a dog is pretty happy just being a dog mm -hmm. they don't need the diamond collars and uh that kind of thing so people definitely are creating their own 
myth about what their dog uh, appreciates and, and makes them happy. It's not what the dog wants. It's what the person wants. And, um, but that's, I mean, that's okay. Like I said, everyone, uh, <laughs> everyone treats their dog their own way, but I guess I will also say that dogs are individuals. I mean, and that's kind of a stupid no brainer, but in the many years that I've been touched by the many different dog dogs, individuality is what makes a dog musher successful and is what makes me happy. Um, it's just amazing to think back to all these personalities that have touched, touched my life in, in so many different ways. And especially in dog mushing is, you know, the basics of it is you have a team in front of you. Um, and they are all harnessed, um, by their harness, but they have no, they have no leash on them, on their mm -hmm. collar. There's nothing that's making the dog go forward. It's all you are behind them and they are leading you down the trail and you are asking them to go different directions and different speeds and, and that kind of thing. But there's nothing uh, pressing them forward except their desire to go trot down the trail and their desire to please you. Mm -hmm. um, of course, there's training in that and there's conditioning in that, but otherwise it's their domestic brain that is says, hey, Allie really wants me to go run down the trail. And that sounds like a really cool thing I should do to please her. But in the same sentence, you have to say that you have to, I, Allie, have to know this team. And that means know each dog individually, what makes them want to continue to please me and what is too much. Mm -hmm. Just like any coach, you have to know when that dog needs a break, when that dog needs a good boy pet, when that dog needs a salmon snack, the same way as any coach in the world needs to know what's to any, any boss, mm -hmm. any boss needs to know that, Hey, I'm the manager and these guys really need a 15 minute smoke break or whatever. You have to know that because probably the bigger thing for dogs is that once, if you ever break that, if you ever ask them to do too much, then all of a sudden they lose confidence in you being their boss, like instantly. So that's been probably the scariest thing in my relationship with dogs is just making sure that I always know each one individually and where the line is that I can ask them to be happy to do things for me and what's too far. And I'll say that, you know, I have never pushed them too far, but I have seen the edge where I've been like, oh, come on, Nacho, you, you're almost there. And he looks back at me like, I really need to stop and have a little bit of a break. And I'm like, mm -hmm. oh, okay, well, let's do it. You know? So I think human beings are different. Like a boss can say, come on, just give me another hour of work, you know, or you're hiking with a group of you know, human beings and you're like, come on, let's do another mile. Well, they'll just get pissed off at you and, mm -hmm. you know, either sit down and say to heck with you or they'll, they'll do what you asked them to. And then they'll just be angry for the rest of the day. Well, dogs, mm -mm, it's over. You do that party over. And that's not something that's acceptable or ever has been in my life. So I've been pretty conscientious about knowing everyone to the T, which has been easier for me because I raise everyone. I know, 
I know who their grandparents are. I know who mm-hmm. their parents are. When they were whelped, I was sitting in the dog room, sleeping in a sleeping bag so that I could be there when they were born. And then I've raised them from puppies. So not only did they know me as the end all be all, but I'm a, a mom slash boss slash I've never let them down. So you have this team in front of you that's not only did the, are they dogs and they're physically talented and they want to do it, mm-hmm. but then they've got this drive to want to please you. And it's literally unstoppable, which is getting me excited talking about it. <laughs> Was there a dog who taught you about that routine balance? Gosh, there's been so many dogs that have taught me so much. Um, I mean, obviously the first dogs in my career were probably the ones who taught me the greatest amount. Um, and two siblings, Pedro and his little sister, Rubia taught me a lot about, um, team management and knowing what each dog can individually do because whether, despite the fact they were siblings, Pedro was a long legged, big, strong, tough, I can do anything guy. Mm -hmm. And Rubia was this honestly short legged kind of chubby. I will try to do anything for you, Allie, but holy cow, I think I might need a ride. (laughs) And, uh, so having that yin and yang and the first couple years, I was, it was very obvious to me that they're individuals and you have to treat them as such. But that was many, many years ago. Since then, they've taught me that I, that I can be, I can try to be as tough as they are. Mm -hmm. They've taught me that I need to try to not be the weakest link in this team. Um, They've taught me to not have, you know, fears of things mentally when, you know, people always look ahead. Um, you know, you're looking at consequences and you're looking at if A, A and B don't work out, then there's C. And I mean, some, sometimes that's good because that's planning and that, that works for us as human beings. But dogs mm-hmm. don't look that way. Dogs are here and now. And the reason why dogs are wagging tail and happy is because they're in the moment and they live there. And um, I think they teach us to be that way a little bit more live in the moment and grab what you can and then worry about the little things later and so i think as a musher you have to you have to kind of live on or at least exist in both realms because your dog realm is one way but your human brain tries to make you go down the trail farther than you are mm-hmm. yeah i read something along those lines recently that said that humans unlike animals are kind of the only organism that really thinks about the future, you know, and that, that catches us up a lot of time. It does. I mean, we are, I mean, let's be honest, we're at the top of the food chain. So I'm sitting here looking at my couch with it, which is a leather couch. So that, you know, says something, Mm -hmm. but, but in the same sense, yeah, we, we worry so much about we worry so much about the future, we forget to live in the present. And you know what? Honestly, the present is all we have because we just, the, the future is not a given for anyone. It's, I think a lot of times until something bad happens to someone, we don't realize that we've, what we've got is right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we can plan for it, 
And it's great to plan for it, but there's no given. Do you think working with dogs has helped keep you in the present? Absolutely. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very here and now thing. And, um, even just, even just the tiny things of the tail wags. Mm -hmm. I mean, because that is a present thing that is like, I am happy right here, right now, my tail's wagging, wagging because of that. And if human beings, you know, like I said, dogs are honest, humans inherently aren't really honest. And I think if we all had tails, it, it would, it would show that more like human beings are so worked up about what they're presenting that I'm not sure what their tail would do. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, you, it would show us a lot more like whether we're truthfully being honest or everyone's tail would just be down between their legs, wondering what the next guy's going to do. <laughs> do you think about that often? If, oh, I, if humans every, had tails, every, <laughs> everything correlates to dogs for me. It's, it's, it's a shame. I was watching a, a kid's uh, soccer game years ago and I was sitting next to my sister and uh, all the soccer moms were sitting around and I was like, hey, you know, that little boy number five, he really reminds me of uh, of Tinker. Like, I mean, don't you think he runs kind of the same way with his head down and he's really driven and, but look at that other, that little girl, mm, I don't know. She's kind of got that submissive thing going and the women are like, are you comparing our kids to your dogs? And of course I'm like, well, yeah. And it didn't seem like an offensive thing to me, but yeah. apparently it was. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a, that's an interesting situation because coming from you, I would not take that as an insult at all. You know, I would be like, <laughs> you know, Allie has worked with dogs oh. for over 20 years. Um, you know, has these intimate, you know, relationships with these dogs, uh, longer than my child has been alive. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, you're probably a rarity. I probably, I probably shouldn't quite say those things, but, um, like I said, I'm around dogs a lot. So the honesty comes out and maybe my tail is stretched out a little more than the average person. <laughs> <laughs> so you received the Iditarod Leonard Sapala Humanitarian Award for exemplary care of your dogs. What was it like to have that recognized? Well, it was, it was phenomenal. Um, and it, it was actually six times in six races. I got it. Oh my um, gosh. Okay. Yeah. So it's pretty of the 20, I call, uh, 20 plus years of running Iditarod, that was, I mean, okay, let's be honest. I wanted to win. Um, but uh, taking the best care of your dogs and being judged by the, you know, 30 to 35 veterinarians that are out on the trail, um, being judged as the musher who takes the best uh, care of your dog team has got to be, has got to be up there. Um, I was of the six times I was awarded it, you know, I was very surprised, you know, two, three, half of the time. And then the other half of the time I was like, man, I know my team just looked great and I did a good job. And mm -hmm. so, um, but yeah, I, I almost feel like that's what I should earn. Like I, I should, I should do that. If I'm going to run this race and I'm going to do the best I can and have the best relationship with my dogs and know what they need but by golly i i should give it to them mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> i think the other thing that helps me out in that those situation is i i have a pretty 
pretty extensive um, education in and biology and and that kind of thing. And I've always tried to go out of my way to to learn from as many veterinarians in the last thirty years as I possibly can, as far as going into surgery with them and just learning what. I mean, they spend years and years and years and what, I don't know, a quarter of a million dollars trying to get uh, their veterinary license. So if I could just, you know, soak up a little bit of their education as much as I can, then it it helps me out. Um, so no, it was phenomenal. It was great. I'm super proud of that. I just recently, my, uh, my dad's a little bit of a woodworker and we have this house that's, um, I built... It's 24 by 24, um, but it's three-story. It's a basement and a first floor, then a, a bedroom, bedrooms upstairs. Anyway, the whole first floor was full of these awards that Alan and I have won over the last 20 years. And um, just recently, my dad thought that was we, we should make a quote, and his words, ego shelf for us. <laughs> so he, he built this, uh, oh, geez, I don't know, it's like 10 foot wide and eight foot tall ego shelf and uh it's got all the all the awards many of the awards on it so now i can turn a light on and stand there and my ego gets real big and then i turn the light off and go have a cup of coffee so there you go <laughs> is that how you wake up in the morning <laughs> <laughs> no probably not every day that's more of an afternoon thing once my ego is taking a couple of hits in the morning i'm good <laughs> when you need to re-up yeah yeah <laughs> so earlier you said that you go into surgery with the veterinarians and you're trying to soak up that education. What does that look like? Oh, it's well, uh, so, you know, when you have a, a full kennel, a full enormous population of dogs from your, your, your youngest to your oldest dogs, that's just like, a human population, you have many things that go on medically, mm -hmm. <laughs> emotionally, yeah. all that kind of thing. And so we have a, we have a really good relationship with um, North Pole Vet Hospital recently. That's been our, um, our go-to veterinary office. And actually the gal who owns it, uh, she and I knew each other before she was a veterinarian and before I was a dog musher. So that's kind of funny. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, things happen. I mean, by golly, you have a dog who's pregnant, who has one puppy and you look at her and say, um, what's going on? Are you doing all right? And she's like, heck no, I'm not doing all right. And you rush her to the ER and, you know, she has to have a C-section for the rest of the puppies. And I do my best to help out the best I can and not get in the way. So when I'm able to help, they let me. And when I'm not, I stand like a normal uh pet owner and cringe on in the waiting room but most mm -hmm. of the time they know my um lack of uh, lack of cringing when it comes to hands-on kind of stuff and so they you know they've let me quote help or look in on two surgeries and um you know typical little normal spays or neuters or you know that kind of thing actually we've had we've had dogs go through amazing medical medical things we had a guy who who broke his leg like crazy he ran thousands and thousands of miles and was running running on one of the the most flat trails in two rivers and he was only about two and a half miles from home and he broke his his bicep bone he just it just sheared just broke and mm -hmm. so 
I mean, he had intensive surgery that, but had a rod put in and then, you know, he had to take the, get the rod taken out. And I mean, so I kind of held his paw through that and just amazing amount of stuff. Anything that a human being can have, dogs can have. We've had dogs Mm -hmm. who've had lupus. We've had dogs who've had heart attacks. We've had, uh, Cushing's dogs and, um, all that kinds of things. And, but like, you know, going back to what I said, uh, if you know your dogs well enough and and you you have soaked up as much knowledge as you can for 25 or 30 years then hopefully you can read into that and get them you know the help they need mm-hmm. when they need it so i'm pretty we're pretty savvy with that we knock on wood we've been pretty fortunate that uh we've made the right choices at the right time and not had too many major problems that we were stumped by you know what I've been noticing throughout this conversation is how you refer to dogs, you know, guys, words like that, that are that are very <laughs> like indicative of how people refer to other people. <laughs> uh, I was out on the Iditarod one, one year and um, uh, so they have, you know, the reality TV on, on the races and that kind of thing. And so there's mm-hmm. always often when you're in the front, there's a camera in your face and a microphone and that kind of thing, which makes me think I should be able to find microphones. But anyway, <laughs> um, I was, um, I was in this checkpoint about a hundred miles from the finish line. And I think I was running in the top three or something. And there was this guy who was a cameraman and, uh, he, I was, I was talking to my team and, uh, I was talking to this little dog boondocks and, she's kind of oh she's just sassy and uh what she likes to do the dogs always wear dog booties when they're running down the trail but when Mm -hmm. i stop them you know dogs the only place on their body that sweats is their feet so when when you stop their dog booties will actually get moist and then they freeze Mm. so you have to you have to take them off you can't reuse them because they're little frozen dog booties would you want that on your foot no Mm -hmm. uh anyway but i was only stopping at this the spot for just a couple minutes to to give them some dog food and kind of rub a few dogs down and i was looking at boondocks and she immediately started taking her booties off and i was like do you have to do that like (laughs) seriously we're 900 miles into the race and you have to take your boots off like can't you just wait for a little while longer and i was having just a cold conversation dog was staring at me i was staring at her and and this cameraman's like Allie, have uh you've been talking to yourself for the last, you know, eight or nine days. And I looked at him like, are you serious? Like, I'm not talking to myself. He's like, Oh yes, you are. <laughs> I was like, you don't get it at all. Yeah. And boondocks at this point had already taken her boots off and was laughing at me because I got sidetracked by dude. <laughs> <laughs> totally. No, I, I completely believe that animals at least can understand a little bit of what we're saying just by like our intonation and our cadence. You know, I, um, I don't write a lot of articles for magazines or newspapers anymore, but when I did, I was doing it full time for about a year and I would talk to my cats constantly. Mm. You know, they were like, they were, your sounding board. Yeah, yeah. They were my sounding board. And they were, like my wife likes to put it, they were another heartbeat in the house, you know? And for me to at least give life to these ideas and see if they work, you know? Yeah. No, I I think that 
they under animals whether it's a moose or it's a caribou or i i don't know if i could go so far as a rockfish but you know <laughs> animals definitely have comprehension on their own i'm sure a rockfish does you pull it out he looks at you like what the you know yeah um but yes it would be absolutely as cocky and arrogant as a human being could say to say that we're the only ones who you know communicate mm -hmm. and are acknowledge what's going on i mean douglas adams uh, what he would say the dolphins so long and said thanks for all the fish i mean <laughs> i really believe that uh animals like i said back to the domestic animals that we have the cats and the dogs we have living in our house that we're literally feeding them expensive food taking it off of our shelves to give to them and cleaning up their crap mm -hmm. and they're like thank you very much yeah they've won yeah but it, but we're okay with it yeah so and i think yeah. that you can tell just by looking in the eyes you know there's something there there's something beyond just like instinct yeah and that brings you to a whole nother story of i mean the sadness of my life has been incredibly happy and incredibly full with all these dogs but the the worst part about being a dog or a cat or ferret or hamster owner mm -hmm. is that they do not live as long as we do they don't i mean if we're fortunate if we're not human beings that you know come and go but i mean i have had just soul crushing you know dogs that have passed and you're like how can you i mean that's probably one of the big questions that people always ask is like how could you possibly have this many dogs and feel this way and i'm like well you have this many friends you know mm -hmm. i mean yeah. so yeah, it's, uh, that's a tough part about being uh, a dog lover, dog owner, dog, whatever you want to call it. Um, they'll live from age 10 to age 17, and that's about it. And they will give you everything they can possibly give you. And then somehow you have to be okay with them departing before you are. And it's sometimes downright, it's not okay, but you have to live with it. I had a dog, uh, well, a number of dogs growing up and, you know, when they leave you, it's, yeah, it's not easy. No. And it's being a responsible dog, cat, whatever owner, you also have that whole other added responsibility of that human beings can ultimately choose how much how much pain a animal goes through before their death and that's even a heavier responsibility um but we are humans and we need to we need to buck up and take that mm -hmm. and um i'm not sure everyone always does that right but you know emotions aside i'm sure i haven't either so <laughs> but it is our responsibility because 
we have we have whether we've brought these animals into the world or we've just welcomed them into our life mm -hmm. that's the commitment through through the end and i think we're generally you know probably more better to uh to our animals than we are to humans sometimes in the long run yeah i can see that but yeah uh we so what we've done <laughs> over the years and I will say is, is a lot of the dogs. So I have had many dogs in my life and most of them I've raised. And then many of them we race, uh, the percentage of dogs that I ra race, raise, excuse me, as puppies, um, go on to race for me, which is super cool to have your team, your puppies, your dogs looking at you like, Hey mom, Hey boss, what do you need me to do? And then when they <clears throat> you know, drag you out of a storm because you asked them to, or they drag you across the finish line two minutes out of first place or whatever. Mm -hmm. You feel this incredible amount of pride, like your kid just graduated from college or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but what we have done in order to make our lives easier and in order to uh, give these dogs uh, kind of a life number two, is we have retired a lot of dogs, not every dog, but a lot of dogs to uh, pet homes after their racing career is over, whether that's age six, seven, eight, nine, what have you. Um, throughout the years, um, I've had a lot of fans and my dogs have had even more. Mm -hmm. And um, so for the last <clears throat> at least 15 years, we have people who come up from even the lower 48 and say, all right, so Beamer's ready to retire. And this was when Alan was racing Beamer and I did her out and Alan's like, well, he's ready to retire after this race. And, mm -hmm. you know, Tom and Cindy are like, well, can we go over and wish him good luck? And and they're like, yeah, this is on 4th Avenue, you know, in downtown yeah. Anchorage before the start of Iditarod. And yeah. Cindy and Tom walk over and they're like, hey, Beam, okay, buddy, you're good luck on this last race. And Beamer's wagging his tail because he's like, I don't know what's going on, but hey, you are really nice people and I'm about to race. <laughs> so it's a win-win. Yeah. And then Alan tells me, you know, he's out on the race and he's mile 500 and he's like, Beamer, dude, just keep plowing away like that couch. It's Tom and Cindy, they're thinking of you. And <laughs> anyway, gets to the finish line and Gnome and Beamer's happy. He's tired. Yeah, he's happy. He's he's eating a big meal. And then five days later, after we, you know, bonded with him and said thanks for everything you've done for us, he's Thomas Indy show back up. And now, actually, his brother went with him too, Beamer and Viper. Now live in outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and they've lived there for six years now and they're in hog heaven and they have their own little so that's what we have done for the last 10 or 15 years because in all mm -hmm. honestly i don't there's only so much dog love that i can spread throughout a population of of dogs and i realized that when i started really becoming competitive and uh brought more and more dogs into this world that i could only i could only be stretched so thin and so that's people look at that in two different ways they're like how could you possibly let beamer and viper go when you they've been your right hand man and you've and i'm like well how could i not you know mm -hmm. how could i have them and 12 other dogs trying to share this one couch and did i mention my house was 24 foot by 24 foot how could <laughs> how could i keep them here when there are these people who who want to share their lives with them and it all goes back to what i said before is dogs live in 
the here and now. Mm -hmm. And when they were with me and when they were racing with Alan and Beamer was at mile 500, he was like, this is it, dude. This is what I want to be doing. And let's kick some butt here. Let's go. We're almost to Ofer. Come on, let's do it. And when we got to the finish line and I rubbed his belly and he's like, oh, this is the best. This is awesome. I love it. Salmon snacks. Allie's here rubbing my belly. And right now, they're in the here and now and they are with Tom and Cindy and they're rubbing their bellies and they don't have a thought about me. They don't have a thought about Iditarod. They're in the here and the now and they're happy. Now I will say if I show up in Pennsylvania and say, hey buddy, they'll do a complete double take. Their senses will be overload and they'll be like, whoa, what's, and I think. So most of the time I don't often go visit dogs after uh, they've retired. Now that kind of seems a little sad, but in the same sense, uh, I, I don't think they need that confusion in their life. Um, they're so happy with where they are that why do I need to go in there and, you know, mess it up? Now I have visited dogs over the years. Actually this summer, I just went and visited a 14 year old guy over in New Jersey who lives there. And, um, but it is confusing for him. <laughs> And how are they doing? Good. Everyone's everyone's good. These dogs, uh, we did some research with um, a physiology vet from uh, U Oklahoma State University years ago. And basically, this is really going to surprise you. But the healthier dogs are throughout their life, i.e. humans as well, mm -hmm. the longer they live. <laughs> and the healthier they are. Yeah. That's shocking. I know. Isn't it? <laughs> these dogs are raised and they're fit and they jog down the trail and they're you know they're olympic athletes basically and yeah. now they're they're living to be 13 14 15 um heidi lived to be 18 years old and she was in connecticut and um so no most of the time they're incredibly healthy throughout the rest of the years in their life part too um uh but it's pretty cool uh to know that I have dogs all over the world who um, had a great life one, and now they're, you know, I don't know, they're, there's a service, service little service dog in Anchorage who's walking around and going to hospices to visit people. And um, there's a, a couple dogs in New Zealand who, uh, you know, they're, <laughs> they're trying to bring the uh, Alaskan Husky genetics to to the Kiwis and um, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Oregon, California, they're running on the beach in California or they're in Lake Tahoe in California. So it's just pretty cool to know that these dogs had an amazing um, life here with me and did awesome things. I mean, we're talking, these are dogs who won the Yukon Quest and, uh, you know, kicked butt in the Copper Basin and then came across the finish line, burled arch in Nome, and were like, here I am, dude. And now they're like prancing down the beach in uh, wherever, Malibu, California. Yeah, they're retired, just like humans. Yep, yep. And in saying that, that is that is what Alan and I are, the stage Alan and I are at now, too. So it's hand in hand. And you're referring to last year when you announced that the... 2021 Iditarod would be your last Iditarod, right? Yeah, it uh, it was the last and it was quite a, <laughs> it was not my best showing. So, yeah. You know, how do you feel 
about all that. You know, you said you feel like it wasn't your best showing, but I wonder, you know, something that came to mind is how often in your career have things not turned out to be the way that you'd hoped, but then in retrospect, when you look back on it, do you appreciate how they turned out? Uh, at times, I, I guess I'm not quite there with the with the helicopter rescue. I uh, I have always um, been able for many years. I lived uh, on my own with my I don't know toughness of being able to deal with myself and no one ever had to come get me and um I, you could always count on me to get out of a pickle on my own whether it's in a blizzard or you know whether it's freezing my butt off and just being able to figure it out on my own or and what have you so it's still a bit uh it weighs on me that uh that i was i did get off the trail which i guess kudos to me or to my team i should say because i wasn't <clears throat> uh, mentally very with it when my dog team brought me into that checkpoint. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> but from, from this, probably my biggest, uh, I felt my biggest accomplishment was that I had always finished every race that I started, whether it was in first or second or last, I had always finished it. And I, that was always something that was something that was very special to me because there's a lot of people that don't there's a lot of people that are like ah if i'm not gonna come in top 10 i'm not i'm not doing it or oh this is really oh this is really kind of hard my fingers are cold i'm gonna stop mm -hmm. or my team's just not doing what they're supposed to be doing i've done you know and yeah every single one of those things happened to me but i decided hey my team's not doing what they're supposed to be doing they're doing something different so let's do something different mm -hmm. or yeah my fingers are really cold i guess they're gonna be black at the end of the race, I'm still going to finish or I'm coming in last. Well, I guess I'm coming in last. So it always, I always, I always put my head down and go. And, uh, 2021, I, uh, didn't, I didn't finish. I didn't. And it doesn't seem, it seems a little bit surreal still. So I guess that's, that's part of it that, you know, and everyone says, well, you know, you'll, you'll get over it. And I imagine I will, I get, I've gotten over a lot of things in my life. Um, but it's just a shame that was supposed to be my last hoorah. And, uh, for the last 10 years, I've definitely <clears throat> always tried to win. There was no, just, I'm going to go finish Iditarod and 2021, I was going to go win. Um, so it's just poor pity me now was the helicopter ride ridiculously cool i think so it would have been really cool <laughs> if i remembered it <laughs> yeah and you got a concussion right yeah so what happened as far as i know and um i was about 200 miles into the race and i've gone over this trail many many times 20 times you know in this section and it is icy and it's quote dangerous and but it's not something I haven't done forever. It's, you know, um, but there was some wind and there was some glare ice, let's call it like a skating rink. And what we think happened was <clears throat> I, uh, my sled runners, which are plastic UHMW plastic on the bottom. So they're very slick. 
they probably got sideways in the wind. And um, what I've done for the last 30 years since I started mushing, as I said, with myself and six dogs, is I've tied myself to my sled um, with a surfboard leash. I've always done that because I've, it's me and them, and if we somehow get disconnected, then I thought the world would be over. So I still did that in 2021. Started that in you know 19 the 90s and still did that today. Mm-hmm. Most people, including my husband, thought that was the stupidest thing a person could do. Um, and it turned out it was whatever, good or bad. Uh, I got flung off my sled, we think. The back side back of my head hit the ice um, and I got knocked out. Um, and then I got drug by my arm, we think, for an indeterminate amount of time until I came back around um, and I was aware that things were bad, let's just put it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I we were, I was about five miles, we think, from this cabin. So uh, I got the dogs situated somehow and we ended up going five miles together. Um, but by the time I got to this cabin, I was, uh, pretty, I had tore my shoulder apart by dragging. And then I was, my head was pretty bad by then. I was puking and not sure where I was, that kind of thing. So lucky me, there was actually a, a, I don't know if he was a nurse or he was a, definitely a, uh, specialist, a medical specialist. And they kind of tried to finagle my arm around, which was a no-go, but more than anything, I think he noticed that I was, you know, traumatic brain injury kind of thing, like mm-hmm. vomiting and not conscious of where I was and falling into the stove and that kind of thing. So he ended up calling the race marshal and was like, um, you know, it appears that Allie's might have something serious. And um, anyway, they ended up sending a, you know, the rescue squad. So Pavhawk helicopter came to Roan, which is a checkpoint in the middle of the Alaska Range Mountains. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I wasn't really aware of all that. I thought that the, <laughs> that's how screwy I was. I thought the helicopter was coming to get a dog that was sick. And then they said, hey, it's for you. And I was like, what? Is the dog going? <laughs> yeah, it's that confusion. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure yeah. you've had one or two. Yeah, I had uh, eight. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, they brought me to the ER and took a few quick x-rays and there was no bleeding. Um, but then, you know, for, so anyway, uh, that was the end of it. My dog team stayed there, which was horrible. I, Mm -hmm. I didn't, uh, I didn't even know about that. Like I kind of didn't realize they were still out there for a while, but I medically or mentally didn't get my brain back to where it was working. And I, could quote care about anything for about uh about two or three weeks so So, that that was your recovery then your recovery time was about three weeks yeah i was pretty fortunate that my husband cares about me and i you know i just sat in the sat or sat or laid down in bed and he cooked for me and gave me i was just on anti-nausea drugs and Mm -hmm. and that kind of thing and uh for a while and yeah, I couldn't really talk to people or it, it just didn't work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so they couldn't do anything with my arm because my head wasn't right. So my shoulders, 
I guess I could have had some kind of, you know, surgery later on, but that was, you know, five, six weeks later on. And it was kind of like, well, I'll never do pull-ups again, which is just fine with me right now. Mm -hmm. So, uh, anyway, so I've had some issues with my head afterwards, So, but I have a concussion doctor and she's real, really good. And, um, we've kind of pinpointed some stuff and I still have some, just a couple times, I, I imagine you might have that too, where you have some triggers and then it, you kind of black out, not black out, but you can't, you can't really focus on what's around you and you have to go into a little cave. And, mm -hmm. uh, so I have that, I've had that a couple times since then for one was for about two days long or so. Um, but I think it's getting better. I mean, I'm not, I'm not how I was. So, Hey, it's good, but, but not finishing the race is bigger. Like, that was, you know, that's where I stood before. That was Allie Zirkel. That's what she did. Like, regardless of how bad it is, she finishes the race. And, and the, I hate to say it, but the helicopter ain't a finish. And you got this amazing outpour of concern and support from people. I know. I know. I I mean, I've tried to look. I, I had. I, yeah. I don't even know what to say about that. I, uh, I probably haven't reached out. So... I have had amazing outpour and support from people for 15 years. Mm -hmm. Like it's like, I get the chills just telling you that of, you know, I've had hiccups in my career here and there and people have jumped on board. Like, how can I help you burp you? So your hiccups go away. Like, yeah. like amazing. Like they don't know me and it's amazing. And, um, I've tried to be forthright with everyone about everything I've gone through. Cause why not be, I'm not a, I don't, uh, public alley is private alley. Like I don't hide, I don't have anything to hide. Like I'm not, you know? Um, and so forever people were incredibly good to me. And I think I kind of, to be honest with you, dropped the ball, but I can't help it. Like I, I dropped the ball when all this happened and I haven't picked it up again. I haven't done any, I mean, you're probably, the first person I've talked to, and this has been a year and a half. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, I did go down and thank the helicopter guys when I finally got my shit together and was able to focus. I thought, you know, they're, they're the one group of people who I kind of need to say howdy to. So I, I did go that. And then like a month or two ago, I actually went to talk to some veterinarians, but that was just cause I was interested in learning some more. So you are, probably the first person I've talked to post this, which is kind of crazy to say. You know, I was in a car accident in, I can't do the math right now, but I was about 13 and my dad and I were driving out to Mammoth Lakes, California, and we got into a head on mm. and I was in a coma for about a week. And then mm. I'd broken my femur. I had, you know, really bad, um, you know, cognitive issues. So I had to go through cognitive therapy and it was oh, just, you know, years and years and years. And so, you know, all that to say, I at least have an idea of oh, yeah. the aftermath of what you had to go through or what you're currently going through, because it is tough. It is tough, you know, like having to work on yourself and having to, go through these new hurdles that, you know, you've never done them before. 
and you're doing it, you're doing it, and then you're like, you know what? I really should thank all of those people oh, yeah. who reached out to me. But you'll get there. I know you will. I think so. I just it was such an easy an easy way to drop out. You know what I mean? I mean like I really can't, and you'll you'll comprehend, but I can't do what I used to do where um, even this morning I looked at your email and I was like, oh, Chrome, oh, like I like I have to look at things again. You know, five years ago I had so much going on and I could organize so much and keep everything straight. Mm -hmm. And boy, I can't I can't keep everything straight now. And I almost, I mean, you kind of got to laugh at it because your brain's doing the best it can and you wonder what it looks like inside there what got you know what got loosened up and what didn't mm -hmm. and i'm not like weirdly enough i'm not upset about it because of course you know there's so much worse that's happening in the world than you know hitting your noggin and when you're doing something fun on iditarod but but it's it's certainly uh put me where i just don't either don't want to do everything i used to or can't and I'm not sure that I'm, you know, I'm not sure I'm being honest. Like I kind of say, Hey, I just don't want to do that anymore. And I think it's a little bit, I can't do that anymore, but I'm not being completely honest with myself. You know, at the beginning of this conversation you had mentioned, and I probably won't get it verbatim, but this, uh, maybe the spirituality involved in your life and what you do. And I wonder if you've thought about like... No, I haven't thought about the bigger picture. That's interesting though, isn't Okay, it? okay. <laughs> yeah. No, I guess, but you are correct. All of us as human beings who are complicated entities, you know, we go through so many different things. Like I can't imagine being 13 and having, or your parents going through that with you. Holy cow, that's honestly even worse to being your dad and watching his son go through that. But... I think we don't, sometimes it just takes a long time to, whether we conscientiously think about it or whether it just is something that gurgles underneath and then all of a sudden slides to the top and you have that aha moment. Um, but yeah, that is, that's a very legitimate thing to, to say to me. And I think that's, I think I might think about it more. <laughs> and it took me a while, you know, to, to look back on that car accident and like what did i learn from that or or even maybe just appreciating like i am the person yeah. that i am in part because of that oh yeah i do i do believe that in a whole in a whole thing that everyone is who they are and should try to appreciate who they are um with the bumps and the bruises and the hiccups and that kind of thing um or if they truly don't then they should try to do their best to change it I mean, but you're, you're right. I mean, I've always, I've always at least appreciated my attempts at doing most things. You know, I've, I've chastised myself, of course, here and there, just like everyone does. But I, the biggest chastisement is really just trying to, you know, get around the not finishing that race. And so I will, I'm sure I will. Cause, <laughs> cause I have to, uh, but boy, golly, that was, um, I don't know. It sucked. Earlier you were talking about retiring your dogs and the way that you were talking about it was like, it was so graceful. And I wonder if, I don't know, you've thought about 
because I've thought about this, you know, when I'm thinking about what I was like when I was younger and, you know, we always, we all have moments where we're, we're thinking about ourselves being very like cringeworthy, you know, like, oh my gosh, why did I say that? Or why did I do that? And, you know, I always have to remind myself to be kinder to my younger self and be more gracious. Yeah. Most likely that's true for everyone because we go through yeah. so many different phases. And and it's funny because I always, I always talk, like I said, talk about people as if they were dogs. And if you could look at yourself as a, <clears throat> as a puppy and all the mistakes that a puppy makes, but they make it with joy and they make it with, you know, without bad intention and they're, you know, they're puppies. And then even yearlings who are like, you know, teenagers, they're like 12 and 13 and they all, they have all this ambition and drive and then they run right smack dab into their doghouse because they're looking at their buddy, you know? And so you're right. You know, you do have to look back at yourself as these different phases of life and that most likely, hopefully, you know, there is the factor and there are humans who don't live with good intention, but I know I do. And I mean, I can tell you do and, and most of our society lives with good intention. So you can't, you're right. You have to be a little more graceful and in accepting who you were and who you are and who you will be, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You've been such a fan favorite for so long. And I wonder if you've thought about why that is. I, I think because it goes back to the authentic alley. Mm -hmm. Um, I really, I, I am you like, I am not trying to, I am everyone. Like, I'm really not trying to be, I'm not trying to be famous and I'm not trying to be better than you. I'm not trying to be, um, have my gold earrings dingling in your face. Like I'm, I'm trying simply to be the best person I can be. And I think that most people try to be the best person they can be and they run into all these hurdles because it's life. And mm -hmm. I think most people, many people who've followed me closely have seen these hurdles that I've run into and have seen that I haven't reached the absolute climax of what I was trying to get to, but I'm okay with most of it, you know? Um, so I think a lot of people's lives are exactly like mine mm -hmm. <laughs> so they can relate. And then they see this person who's, you know, generally happy about it. Um, not a lot of things get me too bummed out. Outside of being a job, what does dog mushing mean to you? Man, I mean, if you asked me that, you know, in 2013, 14, 15, I mean, dog mushing was everything. I mean, it was my passion first and foremost. I mean, it was my reason for existence. It was my lifestyle. It was my job. It was my, you know, it was what I wanted to study. It was what I wanted to teach. It was, it was everything. Um, you know, looking at it today, I'm a little, I, I want to conscientiously pull away from it a little bit because if I don't, I think it, it will pull me back down into that 24 seven. And I don't have quite that much energy to, to do that anymore. Um, but it was everything. 
everything. My whole life re revolved around every part of dogs, mushing, um, being the best musher I could be, being the best, um, you know, I had a lot of supporters, whether they were financial supporters or emotional supporters or, or just, you know, mentors and that kind of thing. And, um, and then I really tried to give back to people because as we talked about, I mean, people, people were very good to me and I'm, I'm the kind of person that, uh, I believe that when you're, you have, you know, mutuality of giving back to people, it makes everyone happy. It certainly makes me happy mm -hmm. when I can go to, you know, the Covenant House in downtown Anchorage and um, whether there's, you know, five kids there that night or whether there's 13 kids there that night, I can sit there and, and talk to them and, you know, listen to what they got going on and then whether, you know, talk to them like real human beings and say, well, this is what I've had going on in my life and maybe I can learn from you and you can learn from me and, you know, at least we can talk about, you know, humanity for a minute and mm -hmm. I mean uh so dog mushing was everything right now dog mushing is not everything and I feel good about that have you thought about who Ali Zirkel is as a retired musher <laughs> no no I've I really did drop the ball like I I dropped the ball and then people started getting in touch with me you know a couple months ago when I six months ago, whatever, when Iditarod was happening again and, you know, wanted to do interviews about what it was like to be the first race sitting out. And then, hey, can you be on KTTU and talk about, you know, the start? And, hey, can you be at the finish line and interview mushers? And, hey, can you go out on the trail and do this? And honestly, I, and then all the, Allie, will you come talk to whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. All, all these things that I used to do. And I, so sadly, I just don't, I just don't answer anymore. Like, I just want to get away from it for a while. It was so all encompassing and I was good at it, but I just don't, I don't know. I don't know. It's so much, like I could do so much and I did so much. And now I want to sit and drink this cup of coffee and look out the window and go, Oh, look how pretty that tree is. Yeah. And that is that, is that weird? Yeah, I guess it kind of is, but. It's refreshing, I guess is the word. I don't think it's weird at all. You know, I just to use that example of my car accident afterwards, you know, I had snowboarded for so long, you know, my dad and I were traveling a lot and doing competitions and filming and things like that. And after that car accident, you know, I really thought about my identity you know, that was my identity for so long. Yeah. And I continued to try to make that my identity until I was about 17. And then um, I just kind of pulled the plug. But hmm. I think that, at least for me, that's what it was. Like, who am I without this thing? I kind of want to get, uh, yeah, I kind of want to get away from it. Like, I, yeah. It's just, it was, it wasn't, I got, I was about to say it was too much. It wasn't too much. It was everything though. It was everything. I will even give you an example. Like during the 2020 Iditarod, it was getting so much that when they finally announced that there like wouldn't be a banquet, you know, I was like, oh, thank, or was it 20, 2021? I was like, oh, thank God. I mean, like. I loved 
talking to people in an individual basis and signing posters and taking pictures and all that. Like I was, I loved connecting with people, you know, sign posters for 2000 people and take selfies with another 3,500 people and then walk fourth Avenue. And, you know, I love that. I was good at that. I, mm-hmm. I, I appreciate those people, but I mean, between you, me and the fence post and anyone listening to this podcast, holy crap. I was like, Oh, thank God. I don't have to do that this year. And now I feel a little bit like that, you know, <clears throat> that was the last year and <laughs> boom, it's gone. But yeah, I did it for 20 years. So over 20 years. Looking back on your mushing career, what do you think were some of your proudest moments or maybe biggest accomplishments? Uh, I mean, there are definitely certain circumstances on these thousand mile races that were tiny little parts of the race that I made the right decision and, you know, got out of, got out of pickles in order to continue to save my race. And there are definitely a dozen of them that I can think of, um, um, the biggest things that that come to mind are probably i mean it comes back to always trying to finish it really does it always comes back to that and because it's so easy to not it's so easy to give up it's and and it's accepted it's so easy to say oh, i sprained my ankle you know i'm done I'm just gonna stop and everyone gives you sympathy and you get out and you you know so probably my seriously my biggest kudos to myself regardless of what anyone else says is that I know how incredibly physically and mentally challenging you know 24 continuous years of racing was and that I put my head down and went and for no other reason than me. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I had sponsors or I had people that were excited about me finishing and my husband and my family and all that, but it was me and the team and I wanted to see us succeed. And as you make your way down the trail, success might evolve, whether it's winning or finishing or coming in top five or, or whatever, whatever your sex success is acceptable in your head. I would say that most of the time when I crossed the finish line, I was able to call that a success. And I think that's probably why I'm a happier person because I, I didn't get completely disgusted with coming in second place to Dallas CV by two minutes and 22 seconds. Like I was incredibly, happy to have finished that race. Mm-hmm. And so it was a success. Now, many people would look at that and say, are you crazy? Like three years in a row, second place. And the last one you only quote lost by two minutes in a thousand miles. And you consider that successful. And I do, because I know that at every moment, which is a lot of moments in a eight and a half, nine day race, mm-hmm. every moment, that team and myself gave a hundred percent and that's a lot to ask for a thousand miles that you at every moment you're giving everything you have mentally 
physically and then you get there and you're like how can you not how can you not think of that as a success whether it's first place second place or 37th mm -hmm. <clears throat> now i don't think a lot of people look at it that way but i do so i guess i'm fortunate i think other competitors and other athletes look at it that way yeah when you're truthful to yourself and you look deep inside about how much you gave mm -hmm. and you know there's no more you could have given it and and, and that year, the Dallas two minute year, there was none left, none. Like I probably shouldn't have made it to safety, except I had Keto in lead and she was like, you're going to safety and I'm bringing you. Yeah. And after that, I mean, <clears throat> the whole blizzard experience and, you know, passing Jeff King out on the trail and not even seeing him. And then, you know, I thought he was dead. Um, when I got into safety that year and the, race race officials came up to me and I was signed in there's there's a clipboard that you sign in and Jeff's name was not above my name and he had left the last checkpoint an hour in front of me and um I mean the first thing I said is where's Jeff and they said he's camping and I mean that blizzard was a death blizzard like it was it was very bad mm -hmm. I mean hurricane winds and you know blown across the tundra and I once again was tied to my sled you know and Keto and I and all the dogs in between were ass over tea kettle rolled out into the frozen ocean and I was very fortunate to have her find that cabin because I wouldn't have found it without her we pulled into the cabin and they told me dude's camping <laughs> uh, no one like you I was like okay well he's dead like there's nothing yeah. like he he ain't you know and then he ended up you know leaving his dog team and walk trying to walk and uh i mean you know i hate to say it but there's only one reason you'd leave your dog team is if you thought you were gonna die mm -hmm. i mean there's or or me from my perspective and then he got picked up by this random snow machiner who was lost in the whiteout and made it to the cabin and I he gets there and he's like how did you make it here and I'm like I have no clue how I made it here you know and then the wind dies down we stay there for you know two hours and the wind dies down enough so that a person could actually mush a dog team and here comes Dallas mm -hmm. and I looked out the window and I I'm not a I'm just not, I'm not bitchy out there. I'm generally a pretty upbeat person. And I, I watched him and I was like, holy cow, like he can actually stand. Like he's walking around his dog team. And like, mm -hmm. he didn't see me. I didn't, you know, I didn't make myself visible. My dogs, I had already pulled behind the cabin and they were in a pile, literal pile. Like picture a pile, a sack of bur burlap sacks. That's what mm -hmm. my dog team looked like. Cause I tried to hide them out of the wind and they were like, so once I saw him go through and I knew he could walk and I was like, all right, well, I can go. And uh, Jeff had already gone out with the rescued officials to go try to find his dog team. So there's that weighing heavy on you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I get my dog team all up and they get out of their little puddle. And I was like, well, let's give it a shot. So I left out, I left about 20 minutes after Dallas and, uh, 
holy cow, I gave it a shot then though, because I could stand and they could stand and we were running and it was awesome. There was 22 miles. It was one of the best races I've ever had because Dallas knew I was back there because it was dark and I had my headlight on and, you know, he kept turning around trying to trying to see where I was, but he tried to cover up his headlight, but I could see him, you know, mm -hmm. it's pitch black. And, um, and then about right before you come up on Front Street in Nome, there's this little 90 degree corner and you're on the ocean, frozen ocean. And anyway, I thought I'd caught him there. And I truthfully did because there was a headlight and there was a guy looking at me and looking on the road, looking at me, looking on the road. And I thought, holy cow, is, you know, is this team stalled or something? I'm going to catch him. And I get up there and there's this guy actually navigating me with his light. He was pointing at me and then pointing up on the road where I was supposed to go and pointing at me and pointing up on the road. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I came under the burled arch and and Dallas, honest to goodness, did not know that he wasn't in third place. He didn't know he won the race until, you know, like I showed up and he's like, where were you? <laughs> and where's Jeff? And I was like, dude, you won. <laughs> so it was good. But dude, I, I left it out there. It was all out there. There is no way I could have pulled that win off. And that was the closest I ever came to winning. So there it is. Yeah, that's great. That that is, um, you know, I'm just trying to find a find a segue into this next question. But I think I'm just gonna I'm just gonna go ahead and ask. You know, um, right now, you know, in this moment, what are you looking forward to? Right now, in this moment, I am looking forward to being warm this winter. <laughs> it's pretty straightforward. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> um. My my husband, Alan, and I have decided to make a significant change in our lives, and we're going to spend a portion of the winter outside of Alaska um, on a boat, a liverboard, 30-foot liverboard boat with, with a dog, not 50. <laughs> yeah. And um, uh, so we're going to actually s probably start in – it's a – it's a, yeah, it's a 30 foot long, 10 foot wide motorboat. It's not a sailboat. Um, and it's got a little, you know, up in the front, there's a nice little bed and it's got a little table and a back area and it's a super nice boat and we can, we can anchor out and we can kind of like dog mushing. Mm -hmm. We can pack our sled for a week or 10 days and, uh, we're going to start in Boston, Massachusetts and we're going to head south and my dad has a little house in Fort Pierce, Florida. And we're probably going to kind of dilly dally all the way down the East coast with our boat and wind up in uh, Fort Pierce, Florida at some point. And, um, the biggest goal is to not, uh, have any frostbite on my fingers this winter, <laughs> 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 which says something cause it's, it's pretty much happened every year until now. You know, Allie, that does it for my questions. And I just want to let you know that, you know, I've been wanting to talk to you for, I mean, I think over three years now, you know, I, when I thought about wanting to interview a, uh, an Alaskan dog mushroom, I'm like, I got to talk to Allie Zirkle. You know, you, your name has just been, yeah, just a part of my life as an oh, Alaskan cool. for so long that when I thought about 
you know, interviewing a dog musher, your name was the first that popped into my mind. Well, good. Well, that makes me happy. And you have been some uh, therapy for me, some cleansing of my soul. It was nice to um, answer some questions that I haven't I haven't talked like this, like I said, in a while. Um, it's made my brain go into little crevasses that haven't been used in a while, and they probably needed to be cleaned out, so that's good. And um, I appreciate your insight with 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 quite a bit. Um, we have some similarities there. Um, anyway, so yeah, my best to you, your wife, your kitty cats, <laughs> uh, and uh, the rest of your family. For more information about the Anchorage Museum, visit anchoragemuseum.org. This podcast was produced by me, Cody Liska, for the Anchorage Museum, with additional help from Julie Decker. Chattermark's music is produced by Keys Open Doors. 